BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, you wonderfully civic-minded folks. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. We are the hosts of Civics 101, a podcast about the basics of how our democracy works. And the authors of the new book, A User's Guide to Democracy. And we're lucky to be taking over the Unknown History podcast on Quick and Dirty Tips to bring you a special four-week series on U.S. civics. So far, we've covered elections, uh, voting, and getting involved. So be sure to listen to episodes one and two for the Quick and Dirty on those all-important subjects, especially with that historic election hovering on the horizon. And today, for week three, we're bringing you our very own big three, the three branches of the U.S. government. The legislative, executive, and judicial branches. But before we tackle that, let's get one important thing out of the way. The system that keeps it all spinning checks and balances. Because, as Federalist Paper number 51 puts it, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The framers were very much aware that the grand ideas and philosophies they laid out in the Constitution would have to be implemented by fallible humans. And fallible humans have a tendency to get a little wild-eyed where power is concerned. The first step was to skirt the whole king issue by splitting the power up across three branches. But that wouldn't be enough. Those branches would need to keep a watchful eye over one another so that no one entity would get too big for its britches. All right, so let's start where the Constitution starts. Congress. The legislative branch makes laws that govern the people of the nation. Pretty straightforward, right? Like, thou shalt not discriminate on the basis of race. Of course, that's also an immense, almost staggering amount of power. you got 535 mostly white, mostly male, mostly well-off individuals who are making the rules for hundreds of millions of Americans. What could possibly go wrong? James Madison had our back on this one. Yes, it is a lot of power, so here's the catch, or in this case, the check. In order to actually become law, the president has to either sign a bill or alternatively do this thing where he doesn't do anything to it and it becomes a law on its own. But if the law says something like only Americans whose names end in the letter L are allowed to drive, the president could say, hey, I don't like that and I'm vetoing it. But then Congress has the power to veto that veto with a veto override if they have a two-thirds majority in both houses, which can be helpful if you've got a president who's totally at odds with Congress. Andrew Johnson, for example, had 15 of his vetoes overridden. That's a lot, given the fact that we have only had 111 veto overrides in the history of the United States. The veto override is a check in and of itself of Congress on the president. But just because Congress overrides a veto to make that bill law, it doesn't mean that that law is good or right. Lucky for us, the framers thought of that one, too. Is that the solemn swish of black robes I hear? Those keepers of the Constitution, the judicial branch, specifically the Supreme Court. 
If Congress strong arms a law into being, the Supreme Court can then review it and strike it down if they deem it unconstitutional. Which, by the way, is not a constitutional power. Uh, It is a power that the Supreme Court essentially gave to themselves in their ruling on Marbury v. Madison. Which is, in fact, quite an immense amount of power. So who is to check and balance the Supreme Court? That'd be the executive. It's the executive branch's job to prosecute violation of federal law through the Department of Justice. And a prosecutor has the power to bring a case before the Supreme Court or not. And Congress has the power to regulate federal jurisdiction. In other words, they can decide the kinds of cases that the courts have the power to rule on. Oh, and also, Congress has the power to impeach members of the federal judiciary. And not just members of the judiciary, of course. They can also impeach the president. Another all-important check, this one imposed on the executive branch. Yeah, the president is mainly checked by Congress. Impeachment is a big one, but more frequently, it's that Congress holds the purse strings and can slow the president's agenda by not budgeting for the things that the president wants. They can also pass laws like the 22nd Amendment, which said, yeah, no more Franklin Delano Roosevelt's. We're limiting all presidents to two terms in office. But what do we do if the executive goes all rogue and we can't wait for Congress to pass a law or an amendment? Ah, yes. That's where those constitutional stewards, the Supreme Court justices, come into play again. The Supreme Court has the power to declare executive actions unconstitutional. It is a rare bird, that one, but all important in a government where men are most certainly not angels. And speaking of that government, now that we know how we keep it from going mad with power, what is it that we're keeping in check exactly? Let's start with the Constitution itself and the legislative branch. Article 1, which sets up the power of the legislative branch, gets far more ink than any other branch. It's four out of the seven pages of the Constitution. But what are these two houses? Are they alike in dignity? What do they even do? It is a poorly guarded secret that the framers were a little bit scared of democracy. Having one large legislative house that's determined by the size of the population, that was scary to them. So we have two houses in our bicameral legislature, the House of Representatives. Which is the large, brash 435-member chamber that's up for election every two years. And the more people you have in your state, the more representatives you get in the House. And then we have the highfalutin Senate, which has a six-year term and consists of two senators from each state. There is a bit of a notion like the British House of Commons and the House of Lords going on here. But while they have several separate powers, which we'll get into, they have one big one. They are the ones who make the laws that govern our country. We're not going to do the whole Gordian knot of how a bill becomes a law here. But the schoolhouse rock version is that the House or the Senate initiates bills, they go to committee, they get out of committee, they're voted on, and then they go to the other chamber for a similar process. And if it passes both houses, it goes to the resolute desk of the President of the United States to be signed into law. Right, and I'm going to tell you right now, the schoolhouse rock version is almost never how bills actually become law. There are a thousand pitfalls that alter and stymie a bill at every turn. And we get into committees and filibusters and the nuclear option and germane and non-germane amendments to bills in the book, but suffice to say, it is a winding path indeed. The one difference that I will mention between the two chambers is that only the House, not the Senate, can initiate bills to do with spending. This is called the power of the purse. 
the framers thought the people's house should be the one who decides where the money goes. So who gets to be a senator or a member of the House of Representatives? The actual restrictions are few. You have to be at least 25 and a U.S. citizen for seven years to be in the House, and 30 years old, nine years a citizen for the Senate. But that's not who really gets to do it. Right. Because of money, because of existing power structures, both houses are overwhelmingly white and male, though the most recent House is the most diverse yet. And if you walk away with one stat about the Senate... It's that there have been, at the time of this recording, 10, and only 10, black Americans in the history of the U.S. Senate. But to get back to their powers, the bills that get proposed in either chamber have such a litany of obstacles that only about 3% of proposed bills become law. And most of those are non-controversial, like naming a courthouse or making an honorary holiday. And some see that as terrible that so little legislation is actually passed, and others see it as a wonderful feature of our democracy, that a Congress that passes tons of legislation has way too much power. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, so we've got the bills and legislation, or lack thereof. Now let's do the other powers. The House has some unique powers. They can break an electoral tie to determine the next president, and that hasn't happened since the insane Hayes-Tilden election of 1876. And the House can initiate impeachment. They just initiate it now. They don't remove the official from office. Yes, and many of us know this since we recently had an impeached president. They start the procedure, and with a majority vote, that official is impeached. The Senate then holds a trial, and it requires a two-thirds majority of the Senate to remove that official from office. And this leads us to the unique powers of the Senate. So, as we said, they try impeachments and remove officials from office. They also confirm presidential appointments. These are for over 2,000 different positions. The president picks someone for a job, a cabinet position, or a judge, and 99% of the time, the Senate gives them the thumbs up. The Senate also picks the vice president in case of an electoral tie, which happened one time and probably won't again since nowadays the Veep and president run on the same ticket. And finally, the Senate approves, rejects, or approves of pending changes, treaty resolutions from the president. And then, of course, there are term limits. The House has just two. The Senate has six. And the point of that is that the framers wanted some institutional memory in our vaunted upper chamber. Senators run on staggered terms, so every election, a third of the Senate is up for office. But the entire House is up every two years. And the result of this is that the House is much more in touch with hot-button political movements going on this very second 
and the Senate a little less so. And one final thing, either house can declare war, which we haven't actually done since 1942. So how have we been in so much war since then, Hannah? That's your very subtle transition to the powers of the executive, isn't it? It sure is. When you think of the executive branch, you think of, well, the executive, the president. But the executive branch employs over 4 million people. It is the nation's largest employer by a wide margin. The Department of Defense alone out-employs Walmart by about a million people. And that's what I think it can be easy to forget. The executive branch comprises, yes, the president and everyone who works in the executive administrative office. But there are also 15 departments that fall under the banner of executive branch. Those department heads make up the president's cabinet, along with whomever else the president appoints as an advisor, and hundreds of smaller agencies. Now, Nick, I know that you're chomping at the bit here. When the world gives you lists, make your mnemonics. Nick has a mnemonic device for both the 15 executive departments and about eight dozen other things, but let's just stick to this one. All right, here we go. Say it with me. See that dog jump in a circle? Leave her house to entertain educated veterans' homes. 15 federal departments in the order of their creation. C.S., that's the State Department, handling our relationship with foreign countries. T, Treasury, they make the money, they collect taxes. This includes the IRS. Dog, D, Defense, that's our largest department. Jump, that's J, Justice, they enforce the laws that protect public safety. This includes the FBI and U.S. Marshals. N.I., Department of the Interior, they manage the conservation of our land. That includes national parks. A, Agriculture, that's the USDA, they oversee farming. Circle, C, Commerce, they promote our economy and handle international trade. Leave, L, Labor, that's our workforce. Her, H, Health and Human Services, that includes the FDA and the CDC. They also manage Medicare and Medicaid. House, H, that's Housing and Urban Development. HUD, they address national housing needs. 2, T, Transportation, that's the Federal Highways and the Federal Aviation Administration. Entertain, E, Energy, that's the DOE. They manage our energy and they research better ways to make it. The next E, easy to remember, educated, is education. You know what they do. Veterans, V, well, that's Veterans Affairs. Benefit programs for those who have served in the military. And finally, home. H, Homeland Security, whose job is to prevent and disrupt terrorist attacks within the United States. Woo! See that dog jump in a circle, leave her house to entertain educated veterans' homes, comma, partner. Comma, partner? President. Oh, right, the executive. Now, there are the president's constitutional powers, and then there are the president's political powers. Most broadly, the president is tasked with making sure that laws are followed through with, with the aid of the many executive departments. And we already know the president can sign bills into law or veto them. The Constitution also empowers the president to appoint people to powerful positions in the cabinet, as well as the Supreme Court, Court of Appeals, and Circuit Courts. All told, around 4,000 positions, 1,200 of which require Senate approval. That's a lot of appointment power. And of course, the president is empowered to make treaties with foreign nations and is the commander-in-chief of the U.S. armed forces. But they cannot declare war. No, they cannot declare war. But here's where we stumble into those political powers not enumerated in the Constitution. Though Congress has not declared war since World War II, America's presidents have led us into many an armed conflict without congressional approval and simply called it police action. 
It can look like war, act like war, talk like war, but if it's called police action, it can be done without congressional say-so. There are also these things called executive orders, where a president simply declares something, and it happens. Like when Obama wanted immigration policy and he couldn't get it from Congress, he just signed the DREAM Act, and a lot of undocumented teenagers got to stay in the U.S. Exactly that. Executive agreements are along a similar line in terms of skirting Congress, but they are used in place of treaties. The president can just make an agreement with a foreign nation without going through the treaty process. We should clarify, because these sound like a big old way around the checks and balances are framers so thoughtfully established, that the Supreme Court can in fact block an order or an agreement, and Congress can pass a law that invalidates that action. And the underlying principle is supposed to be that any executive action has some sort of legal validation. It's all about what Congress or the Supreme Court chooses to let fly. Oh, Nick, we almost forgot. What? The Veep. Oh, right. The Veep. The vice president has long gotten the short shrift in the United States. For most of the job's history, it was barely a job at all. The vice president is president of the Senate. That means that they sit and preside over proceedings, but they only get to vote in the event of a tiebreaker. So usually they just don't show up. More recently, the Veep has been tapped to represent the president in matters of foreign relations. And, of course, on the rare occasion that the president dies while in office or resigns, the vice president gets the world's biggest promotion. All right, so that just leaves one branch hanging the one that Alexander Hamilton called the weakest branch and next to nothing, my personal favorite, the judicial branch. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and the Supreme Court interprets it. They decide what is or is not constitutional. Article 3 of the Constitution, which deals with the judiciary, is so short and vague, by the way. One scholar told us it was so short and vague because the framers wanted to get the heck out of there before Rhode Island showed up and made a hash of everything. But while the Constitution was vague on the powers of the Supreme Court, we have cleared that up a bit since then. They have less notable powers, which is that they hear cases involving ambassadors, public officials, and states. But most of the time, the Supreme Court is an appellate court, which means that it hears appeals. You don't like the outcome of a state or a federal court decision, you can appeal it up to a higher court. And this is important. You're not appealing the verdict of the jury. You're not disputing if you're guilty or not. You're appealing the way that the trial went. Or you're saying that the laws that you broke were unconstitutional. This power, which is called judicial review, was granted upon the Supreme Court by the Supreme Court in the first landmark case, Marbury v. Madison, which is a delightful tale involving the midnight judges and a writ of mandamus, and we're going to get into that in the next episode. So let's talk about how a case gets there to the highest court in the land. With an immense amount of difficulty. Appeals to state and local decisions rise slowly but surely through the American court system, but that last step is nigh impossible. To get your case heard by the nine in D.C., you have to file for what's called a writ of certiorari. Which, honestly, nobody can agree how to pronounce. And that writ tells the court, you should hear my case and here's why. Seven to 8,000 writs of certiorari are filed each year, and the court agrees to hear about 80. 80! You're more likely to have your case heard if there's what's called a circuit split, where several of the circuit courts in the U.S. have ruled differently on something. You've got parts of the country interpreting the Constitution differently. 
And the parties in a Supreme Court case aren't a plaintiff and the defendant like the People's Court or Judge Judy. They're a petitioner and a respondent. The petitioner lost their last case, and they're petitioning to have it heard. And in the case name, the petitioner's name always comes first. So in Texas v. Johnson, Texas lost the last case, and they're petitioning to have it reversed. One more word, it's not lawyers who present arguments in the Supreme Court. They're referred to as advocates. And you can on Oye.org, the world's greatest website, hear the actual arguments of every single case in the Supreme Court from 1963 to now. It is wonderful. The court hears cases starting in October. They discuss them in conferences. They vote on them. And someone who voted in the majority writes the opinion, which is read sometime afterward. Other justices can add their name to that opinion, write concurring opinions that have differing legal reasoning but came to the same conclusion. Or if you're on the side that voted the other way, you can write a dissent. By the way, the vast majority of Supreme Court decisions are unanimous. But like everything, it's never so cut and dry as that. Once the court rules, you have the long, circuitous route to the states adopting the said ruling into their laws, which can take decades. Well, there it is, three branches in an acorn shell. Thanks for listening to Unknown History on Quick and Dirty Tips. We're going to be back next week with part four of our four-part series based on our new book, A User's Guide to Democracy, with a deep dive into the Supreme Court cases that revolutionized how America works. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.